Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Maria Colacercio. Maria is CEO of Cindio, an analytics platform that ensures workplace fairness in every stage of employment and aims to eliminate pay disparity. She is responsible for the company's vision, strategy, building talent within the organization, and developing organizational excellence to deliver the highest levels of business value to its customers. Most importantly, she is passionate about issues surrounding equal pay, employee wellness, and equity at work. Prior to joining Cindio, Maria co-founded Smartsheet.com, worked in technology and communications at Microsoft, Starbucks, and a variety of tech startups. She has a proven track record of building successful companies with strong core values that are dedicated to its people and customers. In addition, Maria is a mom to seven kids and makes sure to talk about family finances at the dinner table. Welcome, Maria. I love that. I'm like, Hi. I just I just went out about a cool app. I have to send it to you when we're done. But I had dinner with this woman. We were talking about great investments. And she's like, actually, I just invested in this startup. And it's it's like a game. They gamify learning about finances. And the kids get to win little things as they answer questions around um, understanding finance. And I, I just think it's such an important subject. That the kids don't I get to learn. That. The kids don't get it to learn is. it in school. Yeah. No, they don't. They still don't learn the basics of how to manage your own personal bottom line, which is huge, obviously, as we go out into the world and become earners. We have to understand what the puts and takes are in terms of how to choose a career and how to manage our bottom line. And and so that's great. I love to see things gamified for especially like late elementary, middle school. Yeah, totally. I went early with my kids and they're like two or three. Someone told me about an app where I could um, give them like an allowance over the app. And it was just way too sophisticated. They didn't understand yeah. it and they still didn't understand the value of the dollar and, and now they're getting it. So that's awesome. Okay. We're going to start with some rapid fire. Are you ready? I love it. Let's go. Okay. If you could have any superpower, which one would you choose? Mm. So we're big Marvel people in my house. We've watched oh. all the movies. We're watching WandaVision right now. And so we talk about this a lot and I think telepathy and, and I've gotten into very heated debates with my son because he wants to be invisible and, and, and I choose telepathy because I think that ability to really understand how people are thinking about things, how people are reacting, I think it could be a, a complete game changer in terms of empathy and how to yeah. build empathy. If you really understood how people were responding to just like those microaggressions, those little comments, the things that were being said, you you could have such a better understanding of just humanity in general. Yeah. Well, it's almost like your son and you have the exact opposite way of viewing viewing things. If he's saying invisible, you're saying no, actually to be seen and heard. Um, okay, what was your favorite concert you ever attended? Oh my gosh, it ha- it's going to be cringy, but it had to be. It's 1989 by Taylor Swift. I mean, she is just... She's I went to her a, concert. Amazing. 
she's an entertainer and it's funny because I'm going back and forth between I also saw um Beyonce and Jay-Z and CenturyLink um that first outdoor concert that they ever had I was I was there also that's so funny that was incredible both of them were incredible I'd probably say they tie but I thought I think the songwriting in particular that's skill to be able to create songs out of nothing is something that I'm I just am in awe of that Taylor Swift can do that and be such an entertainer but it's the songwriting piece that I think makes her an incredible artist yeah I agree okay so kind of on that subject if you could be famous as an actor writer athlete or musician or actually or an author which would you choose um, athlete, hands down. No question. Really? What sport? I don't even care. I just think these, these professional athletes are incredible. And like, are you an athlete? Like, did you grow up as an athlete? I mean, <laughs> sort of. I, I was a big fish in a small pond. I went to a small school, so therefore I could play varsity basketball and volleyball. But I think at a larger school, I might've been nothing the, the interesting thing about this question is I actually went to college on vocal music scholarships well so, I know I saw that that's why I, I looped in a little music stuff in there yeah so by trade I'm I should have said musician but I found I, I don't know I think because I've had so much experience with it that I have a bit of stage fright when it comes to singing on stage now because I was so brutalized by some of my voice teachers through college that being an athlete, I mean, just being able to perform at that yeah. level would yeah. be incredible. That's funny. You were you were a musician in college. I was an athlete in college, and I would probably say musician. Yeah. But I, you know, we always want what we can't have. Okay. So, who has been the biggest influence um, in your life as far as your career or your career choices? Mm. Such a good question. I think there's sort of two spectrums of that question. There's who has been on the home front encouraging me to go for things and to do things and to know that I have the support at home, that would be my husband. So Brandon is such an inspiration because when I got the CEO job offer at Cindio, I had just had Gracie. So we have a blended family. Um, We met, I had five kids from a previous marriage. He didn't have any. And so she was our first together. And I had just had her. It had been six years since I had had a kid. It sort of felt all new, but I had the recollection of how to do it. Mm. And I'm sitting there nursing Gracie and the board member from Cindy calls and gives me the CEO job offer. And in that moment, I was so able, I was able to say yes, because I knew I had Brandon's support because we've been talking about it. I was like, man, can I really do this? We just had a baby. I haven't had a baby in a long time. We've got the other five kids. Like we really have to make sure they feel supported and this is a big job. And he was like, no, you have to do this. You have to do this. This is everything you talk about in terms of that intersection of passion, purpose-built work, and it's your skill set. It's a SaaS company pre-series A. It's everything that you love. And so I think... You know, I will never forget that moment. And I don't even know if my board member knows this. His name's Bob Pearl, great guy. But I'm sitting on the couch nursing my baby when I get the call with the official job offer. And I think every single person needs someone like that who can inspire them to push themselves beyond their limits, but specifically women um, who are really struggling to figure out how to balance 
work life and home life. And certainly yeah. we're seeing that with COVID. So I would say that's my biggest, like, go do it. Take so, so take Brandon control. was that person. And then there's a second, you said twofold. Is there another person that's more like someone in your career through that you've worked with? I, I think actually I, I draw a lot of inspiration from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I don't know if you've seen the documentary on her uh, and then course. there's sort of the, the um, little bit fictionalized one, but I think I draw a ton of inspiration from her because she was constantly pushing the envelope in a way that wasn't popular, but intrinsically she knew she was right and she had the data behind her. And I think that's exactly what we're doing in pay equity. We are disrupting an industry that is addicted to the billable hour and that is looking through the lens of legal risk only. And companies are continuously outsourcing this problem mm-hmm. to legal when it is a people issue. It's so, it's so interesting that you say that because I was actually going to ask you that later and we're going to get into it because we're in a rapid fire. But I, I was thinking like, is this people just trying to avoid like legal battles or is this actually progressive interested companies in writing years of wrong? You know, I don't know what you're seeing or does it, I mean, I'm sure you ask your customers like what their drivers are. It's a really great question. So we see companies coming to us for a variety of reasons. And of course, um, reducing legal risk is one of them, right? So pay equity class action lawsuits are, I mean, the who's who of the Fortune 500 are embroiled in these today. You see them in the news every single day, another company. And for companies, the perceived monetary cost of a pay equity class action, even if they win, even if they take it to appeal and win is massive. There's brand issues there, there's turnover risk, there's employee loyalty and productivity risk and cost. So of course companies don't want to get stuck in a situation where they're dealing with pay equity class action. So that is one piece of why companies come to us to reduce that legal risk. But the other part of it is that employees are starting to demand this. Employees Mm -hmm. are starting to, if the employer leaves a void in terms of information and conveying transparently information about what they're doing about pay parity and fairness, employees will fill that void. Absolutely. They're smarter than ever. Like, I mean, we're seeing that with candidates looking at job opportunities. They're no longer just like, oh, that's great. I mean, they want to know everything. They're way more sophisticated than ever before. I think that's great. Then they're going to hold companies accountable. Okay. So if there was a book written about your life, what would it be called? Almost amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? It's good because if you were just like amazing, then there wouldn't be anywhere to go. That's awesome. Exactly. Almost famous, almost amazing. Almost something. Almost something. What habit are you trying to break? Being late. Oh, well, you weren't late for this podcast. So yeah, I, you know, my daughter's violin teacher always said it was that little adage of like, uh, early is on time on time is something and late is unacceptable. Yeah. I'm really trying to flush lateness, tardiness from my my uh daily yeah i think that's good um okay final rapid fire and then we're going to get into all of it um what is your superpower it's anti-perfectionism it is being super excited about 80 percent it you know so much of being a ceo is being able to focus and prioritize and i think because i have the ability to say 
all right, we're 80%. Let's go. We're not going to keep iterating on this thing until it's Mm -hmm. absolutely perfect. We're going to put it out. We're going to check and adjust. And then we're going to come back and see what we need to do to improve. I think it's, I think it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a superpower and it's definitely unique. And it, to me, it sounds like a little bit more kind of biased toward action, like less analysis paralysis. Like I completely agree with you. I I'm a doer completely. And um, I didn't ever think of that as a superpower, but I love it. I might have to to steal it. That's a good one. Okay. So tell me about you. Where are you from originally? And um, did you grow up in like a big family? Is this a thing? Yeah. So my dad's the youngest of nine. Um, My grandparents came over from Italy and my siblings and I are really first generation college grads. So my parents didn't go to or finish college And we grew up in your sort of stereotypical Italian-American family. We had Sunday dinner every Sunday with the meatballs and the pasta and the open door policy where people would just show up, neighbors, friends, our friends, whomever, and you'd get a plate put down and a meatball slopped on it. And you sort of started to wonder as you got older, like how is there this never ending supply? My mom and my aunt, they just knew how much to make. It was like their superpower was figuring out exactly how many people were gonna stop by. But that's how I grew up. I grew up surrounded by cousins and food was a big part of our religion. Um, and yeah, just, just family. And where, what, where in the Here country? in Seattle. Oh, here yeah. in Seattle. I grew up here. That's amazing. And so where are you in the birth order? How many siblings do you have? There's four of us and I have an older brother, older sister, me and a little brother. So I am middle, as middle as you get. Your third, okay. And how would you describe it? So you said the typical Italian, your first generation college grad, but not first generation. Mm-mm. Your parents are born here. Okay. Yeah. And how did they end up in Seattle? Like, what's the history there? They just came over from... Loosely, the story goes, my grandparents were farmers and they set up a truck farm, which was down by SeaTac Airport. And mm. the family actually owned it until maybe about 10 years ago. And then Wells Fargo built their training campus on that land, but they would truck fruit and vegetables to uh, Pike Place Market. And oh, then, that's great. Yeah. And then from there, you know, again, my dad's the youngest of nine, but my uncles are a little infamous in this town. So Frank Colacurcio made quite a name for himself in running, you know, the most profitable strip club enterprise west of the Mississippi. Oh, nice. So there's that whole side of the family. Um, but yeah, very entrepreneurial in their own way. They ran Mm -hmm. my aunts, you know, my aunt Rose had a restaurant, there was the strip clubs or they were in the pinball business. Um, just a lot of, it sounds very, very old school. It reminds me of New York a little bit, actually. Um, almost more than, more than Seattle. And so do you remember as a child, like, if you look back, what, what you were kind of fueled by, like, what were you into, um, as far as how you spent your time? I was super active as a kid in terms of, I was in student government, I played basketball, I did theater, I did choir. I just had this, this extreme need to be on the move. And I'm quite honestly, I'm not sure where that came from. My sister is super smart, really athletic. And so a great story to kind of exemplify this is I was a freshman in high school and she was a junior and she was on the varsity basketball team and I was on the freshman team. And by the time I was a sophomore, I was so determined to make swing JV varsity so I could play with my big sister on her same team. And she, you know, she one spring randomly was like, golf sounds fun. And she made it to state. 
she she's just incredibly athletic and I asked my dad to hook up a spotlight outside our basketball hoop in the driveway so that I could practice my free throw way past dark and that was sort of always I was like I will outwork anybody I'm not the most naturally gifted or talented but I will outwork people and so I finally did my sophomore year I made swing I played in one game it was the (laughs) state qualifying game and my sister fouled out and I think the coach thought it would be kind of like amusing to sub me in for her. And I think I played for 40 seconds or something. That's your moment. That's your moment in the spotlight. That I was my it. moment. And did you have a sense of um, kind of business where you, was that a subject at the dinner table eating the meatballs or did you, did you know um, kind of that that was maybe the direction you would take? I always wanted to be a lawyer. I don't know why. Um, well, so you're, very, you're very articulate. I noticed it like the minute you started speaking and um, that's a gift, of course. And I feel like lawyers always have the gift. I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I, I was really interested to the point where right out of college, I went to DC and I got an internship at the Smithsonian at the National Muse- Museum of American History. I was studying for the LSAT. I worked in a lobbying firm but did marketing for nonprofits and this mentor of mine his name was William Alexander he was former marine just this incredible black professional he said to me do not become a lawyer you'll be you'll just drown in paperwork you'll hate it and i'm sure the conversation there was more to it than that but he really did change the trajectory of my career because Isn't that interesting, the sliding door conversations that you have that you're like, take a left, take a right. And somebody just says something that, that adjusts your entire thinking on something. So you went to Whitworth. I did. How did, how did you decide? My dad grew up in Spokane, actually. How did you decide um, to go there? Like, what were you, what were some of the other options that you were considering? So at that point, it was all about the vocal scholarships. Mm. So it was it was UPS, Whitworth, Whitman, you know, the schools that had really good choral programs, because at that time, that's what I was into and sort of leaning toward was whatever school I could, you know, get the best scholarship from. So that's how I ended up at Whitworth. But it's a, you know, traditional liberal arts. I majored in history. Uh it's it's really interesting to look back at that education and how it does set you up. There is, there is truth in this concept that a liberal arts education teaches you how to read, write, and think critically, Mm -hmm. which can set you up for a variety of career trajectories. For sure. And do you, was that a good choice? Like looking back, is that one of those like, oh my gosh, that was the best experience. So I worked at a restaurant. I was a waitress at night. I was in four choirs trying to keep my scholarship. I don't really think if, if I were to do it again, I think I would try to enjoy college a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I was very driven yeah. during college and was doing all sorts of things and trying to work. And yeah, well, it sounds like there's, there's, it. A, there's a theme here, right? The drive is kind of a theme because then right out of college. Um, so it sounds like you went to work at the Smithsonian. Is that what you just said? Because I saw mostly like marketing looks like you had this whole crazy marketing career I you know it's it's a funny story and I don't know if it's applicable but right out of college went to DC worked on a congressional campaign um for a congressman named Lane Evans out of Illinois so I was in like nowhere Illinois for a campaign cycle doing campaigning for him went back to DC worked at the Smithsonian but the Smithsonian didn't pay so I had to get a day job and a night job Mm. so I worked at this restaurant called 
Osteria Goldoni. It was an Italian restaurant in the heart of DC. I was the first female waitress. They only hired men and all the men were from Europe and we had to wear these white jackets with gold. Oh my gosh, I would have loved this restaurant. (laughs) Yeah, it was incredible. The owners were from Florence and I convinced them to hire me. I convinced them that I could be as good a waiter as any of the men. And so I was the first female and all the men uh, waiters that are now still, I keep in touch with some of them, place bets on how long I would last. They thought I would just crack under the pressure. And it was, the politicians would come there. It was a five-star restaurant. So that's what I did at night. By day, I worked at this agency doing marketing for nonprofits and lobbying groups. And then I had my Smithsonian sort of internship. And it was really interesting. I met a woman at a dinner party and she said, you got to move to the Bay Area. Tech is where it's at. And I was like, tech? I don't know anything about tech. And she said, come interview for a job at my company. We'll fly you out. You got to come. It's a marketing job. And so I did. And it was kind of this theme that I've seen in my career where you walk by a series of doors and there's not a door that's open, but it's almost like it's just, it's cracked a little and you can see like a slit of light coming through and you sort of get curious and you wander off like a child through the door because you're curious what's on the other side. That's very much how my career has unfolded because I flew out to the Bay Area. I got a job at this really, really techie startup that did bandwidth management. So they had hardware software that would actually look at your, your pipe, right? So you could yeah, prioritize. Not the, not the sexiest stuff. Yeah, not sexy at all. Yeah. Would you call that woman who kind of pulled you through that door a mentor or have you had mentors along the way? I think there's this whole conversation right now about mentor versus sponsor, right? Yeah. So what do women and minorities need in the workplace? Do they need mentors, people that are just going to sort of give them advice? I think they need sponsors. Right. Or sponsors who are actually going to say, you know what, Shauna, when your name comes up at calibration or in a meeting and you're not present, I'm going to advocate for you. I'm in a higher position. I have more power. I have more credibility and I'm going to advocate for you. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing for me is that a lot of the sponsors in my career versus mentors have been men. And I think this is a great opportunity for men to continue to show up. And I know I'm unique in this case, but when you can truly sponsor a female or a minority in your business, you have a stronger, louder voice if you are the majority in the company. Absolutely. You can make a difference. And this is something that we're, we're asking men to do as well. We're asking them to share their salary with females that do a similar job. That can have oh, a tremendous impact. If you not only being an ally, not only being a mentor, but a sponsor to me means saying, you know what, Linda, I, that kinda, you do I got the same you. job and I'm pretty yeah. sure I get paid more than you. Here's what I get paid. Let me give you some, some input. Let me give you some information that is power. That's how men can help. Yeah. So I, I think I've had some of that in my career and I've been really lucky and privileged that I've had people sort of actually sponsor me versus just yeah. mentor me. I don't, lucky might not be the right word. You've created opportunities. You've created relationships, which to me, as a, as a mother with my children, I'm constantly teaching them. I think that's more valuable than anything is knowing how to build relationships, knowing how to um, see opportunity when it's there. It's like that whole lucky people feel lucky. I don't necessarily know that that's true. I think they create opportunity. Um, Anyway, that's a whole other It's a a great point. I mean, probably the biggest 
person who influenced the trajectory of my career the most is this guy, his name's Reagan Seabooth. And he was a hiring manager at Starbucks. I had gone through a pretty difficult divorce, had been out of the workforce for a couple of years, home with my kids, was re-entering, broke as a joke, needed to find a job, knew I had the smarts and the experience. I mean, I had led marketing at a company I co-founded that was now headed to an IPO. I had led teams at other technology companies, Mm -hmm. but still that gap in my resume and that blow to my confidence of being told no, like you need to come in at this much lower level because you've taken some time off. This was the first guy that sat down with me and really saw not only the potential, but also the past performance in lieu of, despite the gap in my resume. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually interesting because I get obviously reach outs all the time from women who have taken a break. And it's true. It's like, I have to advocate like crazy for them. And I'm the recruiter on the outside and they need to be open to it to begin with, because there's so much talent, especially in actually in this past year, it's more than ever. Women are on the sidelines because they had to be because they've taken care of their kids during COVID. And the gap should not be, unless there's like, we're an engineer and they've lost all their ability to code. They have to just know that they've got the aptitude for curiosity to learn more, but companies need to take a, a stand here. This is a big, a whole other big conversation. It, it is. It's the skills over experience conversation. So do I need someone that's done B2B marketing for 10 years in a SaaS environment to fit this job? Or do I need somebody that thinks critically, that knows how to problem solve, that understands analytics, that can thread the needle from brand and thought leadership to lead generation. I mean, some of those things you need, right? But some of them are skills. And I think we've all seen in the workplace when someone fails, it's usually because of the how, how they get work done, not the work itself. That's coachable, that's trainable, that's learnable. And I think what was really remarkable about Reagan is he saw that. He was like, wow, this person can communicate. They are going to be a great team player. They are going to bust their ass to get stuff yeah. done. I'm going to yeah. be able to count on this person. Those are the things that matter. And that's why so many companies like Starbucks have done so much with hiring vets because they can make that connection of like, what are the skills learned when out in service that can translate to the corporate environment? I completely agree with you. And it's actually going to put you at a huge advantage as you go to scale Cindio because you're not going to, you're going to be looking at the white part of the paper when you look at resumes and we'll understand that that story is just as important as the things that people list as far as their tenure and the, the recognizable names or even the pedigree of the school that they went to. So many companies are limited in their thinking and they, they pass on incredible candidates. Um, so I think it's going to help you a lot to have that mindset. Um, so um, tell me, like you have these different jobs, you've worked at startups, you've had your own company, you've, you've done Starbucks, you've done um, Smartsheet. Is there a lens through which you assess opportunities? I mean, not just having a Reagan to sponsor you and to believe in you, but just as you, if you were giving advice, I guess, to your younger self or your kid sister, um, is there a thing that you look at? I think earlier in my career, it was very much about whether it was a promotion, a lateral move, or a new job. It was, what are the two bullets that I'm going to be able to add to my resume? Meaning, Mm -hmm. like, what are the two new skills that are that level, that are worthy of being put on the, the, uh, you know, it's really the symbol of your entire career, right? It's this one sheet of paper. So am I going to get 
something new? Am I going to get stretched or pushed to the degree that I would have something of something to say, like some new category to say? Um, that that was kind of how I looked at things. If it, if I was going to be doing the same old thing, or I wasn't going to be learning anything new, or I wasn't going to be stretched, I would pass. And then I think as I've gotten older, it's been much more about purpose-driven work. It's been mm-hmm. about, you know, passion. It's been about how can I find something to do that when I get up in the morning, it's something I'm thinking about and wanting to solve anyway, regardless mm-hmm. of my, and I think that's. Well, that's that whole, like, you know, do what you love, never work a day in your life thing. Like you're like, I'm changing the world. I would do this for free. And it's so cringy, but it's, it's so true. It doesn't mean you don't have crap in your job that is not fun or, or just grunt work. Every Mm -hmm. single job being a CEO, I don't care. You're going to have the grunt work and the stuff that's not fun or that isn't in your area of strength. But I really do believe when you care about your mission or the purpose or the problem that you're solving, those days are a lot easier than they would be normally because you can remind yourself of your why. Right. I love that. And so which of these roles are kind of where, where do you go to dig deep to feel that confidence? You know, you were saying that your husband kind of said, you've got to take this, but you have to also believe it, which, you know, some people have a hard time seeing like themselves as a CEO of a, you know, funded startup. I think there's a lot of people out there that are winging it. And I think when you get, you know, if you think about like a quilt and you get closer to the seam, you start to realize that a lot of the leaders, there's a lot of intuition and gut that are that's going into decisions that are being made, or you know, they're stepping back and just absorbing a whole bunch of information and making very quick assessments and observations. And you can talk yourself into really being able to do anything if you if you give yourself a minute and give yourself some grace and say, well, you know what? I bet not every leader knew how to do this the first time. Absolutely. No. And there's so many startups now that people were starting, you know, other basements in college that have been incredibly successful. And so a lot of times I motivate myself by thinking they had to do this for the first time. They had to go through the first, you know, audit or figuring out what their sales target should be or backing into an ARR, a churn number, all these things that now we know how to do like the back of our hand. Everyone had a first time to figure that stuff out. And so you just have to remember that also failure is not such a bad thing if you learn from it, but you have to Failure is actually, most of the people I've had on the podcast, like those are the best learnings they've had is when they failed or when they made, they thought, you know, I really wanted to go to this school. I actually got turned down, ended up at this school and so much came through it that they talk a lot about doors closing and kind of windows opening. And those, that's kind of the, the incredibleness of life. Like that's, those, that's when you learn the most. Um, Okay. So I have a question for you. You talked about this um, this board member that called you while you're nursing your baby. How did the opportunity even come to you to begin with? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story. So I wasn't the founder of Syndio. Uh, the founder was a gentleman by the name of Zev Eigen. He's our chief data scientist still today. And so that's a whole yeah. nother story about the importance of the CEO founder relationship if both stay at a company, it's, it's critical. 
and we have a fantastic relationship. But he originally founded the company as a people analytics platform. So the early version of the company was based on organizational network analysis, which lets companies understand inclusion, relational data, how work gets done. And he saw a rapidly changing macro environment that was starting to lean toward this idea of pay fairness. He was a lawyer, he's a PhD JD. And so while he was embroiled in really long sales cycles and like a really tough consulting sell on this product that he originally founded the company on, he started innovating around a pay equity calculator that could be a software version of all the pay equity analysis he had done as a lawyer. And that's how I came to find him. So when you talk about sponsors, one of my sponsors at Starbucks was a guy by the name of Rob Really, he was lead employment law counsel at Starbucks, had run pay equity analysis for 13 years. And he was the one that introduced me to Zev because Rob and I had talked so much about the automation of pay equity in the context of Starbucks going public with their pay parity mm. initiatives. So Starbucks was going public. I was in marketing and communications. I was going and pushing back to legal saying, why can't we be 100%? Why do we have to be 98? And in that process, I, Rob taught me, Rob spent the time to step back and say, I'm gonna to explain to you how this is done. I didn't know how it was done. And he could have easily been like marketing back off, it's 98%, I don't wanna talk about it again, but he didn't. He took a minute to explain it. And in doing that, I said, we need to start a startup. We need to create software to automate this. It's perfect, it's archaic, it's expensive, it's messy, it's not solving the problem. And he said, well, you gotta meet this guy Zeb because he just made a pitch to me for his pay equity thing. Oh I think my he, gosh, that's amazing. I think, yeah, I think he invented our thing. Cause at that point we had been having the dinner table conversations oh with my, my gosh, brother. I and like, love that. I love that. We, well, and also you said you said all these things about it, but one of the things that I read about in preparing to to talk to you today was the clunkiness of it as far as the speed. Like I didn't realize it takes three, four months and outsourcing to these consulting firms and law firms to do the analysis, like you guys can do it in real time within a day. It's true, we can do it immediately. And, and that is what was so powerful and what Rob saw when he called me and he said, I just met this guy Zev, he invented our thing, like we're dead in the water. Cause we had already named our company. We named our, our company Pay Fairy. We were like, oh, we're gonna create a company. It's gonna be called Pay Fairy. And uh, I said, oh, don't worry about it. Their UI probably is terrible. This is great. They've done all the early stuff for us. Um, and we saw a demo and I was like, wow, this, this is, is incredible. Really yeah. How did impressive. he come up with the name Cindio? So I think when he first started the company, he had acquired, he had purchased a, a piece of foundational tech that already had that name. So it sort of just progressed with us. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was supposed to indicate like network synapses between different people. Interesting. So I think what was really interesting about that is once we saw it, we per usual jumped into action. Rob joined the advisory board. I just went um, on maternity leave and I said to Zev, like, I would love to help you. How can I help you? What do you need help with? Pricing and packaging, marketing. I just want to see you be successful. I'm so interested in helping this company. And so that's how I started. I, I started helping out in my free time. And, and that's a, another really great lesson for people is that sometimes you have to invest without compensation if you yeah. really want to move into a different field. And put, and in this, put in this sweat equity. So is it based in New York? So our CTO is in New York with our dev team and then our HQ is in Seattle. Okay. Yeah. 
And so when you became the CEO, what was the vetting process? Because obviously you and Zev have, you know, a great working relationship, but there's a board. And who else is part of vetting you? And what types of questions were they asking? There is. It was funny. So I was, um, I had left Starbucks by this time, was still with my brand new baby. And I got a call from a board member who said, hey, we want to promote you to head of sales and marketing. And I said to him, you realize I don't work for you, right? I, I don't work here. <laughs> so it was this interesting sort of thing where like you're putting so much time into this that even the board now thinks that you're sort of a full-time consultant or who knows. Um, so when they first brought up the idea of CEO, they said, you know, we're doing a search. We want the CEO in New York next to the CTO. Would you be interested? And I said, there's no way I can't, I can't move my, I have joint custody. I can't move my family out of Washington state. And, and so they were like, okay, well, bummer, you know, this is really important to us that they're co-located the CTO and CEO. And then they came back to me, they had gone through like 50 something candidates and they came back and they said, what if we open it up nationally? Would you be interested? And I said, sure. And I had to fly down to LA to give my 90 day pitch. And I had maybe three days to turn it around. It was like, oh well, my we're at the end of the process. You got to be down here in three days. Now, remember I have a two month old. She was like eight weeks, maybe seven weeks at that point. So I flew down with her. I took her with me and I did my 90 day pitch and I just cherish those pictures of me and Gracie from that I'm trip. sure that's incredible. And so what's the business model? How do you guys make money? So we're a SaaS company. So software as a service. So we have software that we license for 12 or 24 months. And truly it is how enterprises are moving away from this old model that you talked about where they're outsourcing to law firms, where it takes months and months. By the time they get the data back, it's stale. And more than that, they learn nothing. They don't learn which policies and practices are driving disparities to begin with. So it's like a tumor that just grows back. They like hammer the tumor and a year later it's grown back because they haven't done anything to identify mm. what's happening. And that's what our software does. It immediately identifies what policies aren't working where are the pay disparities? You can remediate them with budget. It tells you exactly what to pay people, but then it shows you how to resolve them. And on top of that, it creates starting pay offers, which you would appreciate, obviously, since this is what you do, that keep market pay in mind, but also take into account internal equity. So if I have solved all my problems and I'm hiring a new engineer and this engineer is in New York and has XYZ skills, experience, whatever it is that I pay for at my company, it will give you, it will pop out a range for you of where you need to stay within the bounds to not cre create a new pay equity problem. So one hire outside the range isn't going to be a big deal, but if you're hiring engineer over engineer over engineer, and they all happen to be disproportionately male or white, you're going to create another pay equity problem. So mm. That's the beauty of this disruption is that it's not just immediately analyzing and helping you resolve. That's disruption in itself, but then add on the fact that you can stay on top of it over time. And that's just, that's groundbreaking. Oh yeah. And so what is the data? Are you saying to them, this is the data we want you to look at, or are they coming to you with ideas around the data that they think is most important or how does that whole thing work? It's a straight uh, integration with like a workday with your HRIS system. So it really is just, we're ingesting the company's HRIS. The company does tell us what why they pay what they pay. But first, our software predicts the degree to which that's true. Mm. So the company will say, well, we pay based on education, tenure, and performance. 
okay, great. Can't wait to see how well you do at this because every company says they're paid for performance. And let me tell you that a few actually are. So we predict it. And then the software identifies, basically we predict it net of gender as if no one had a gender or a race or an orientation, depending on what they're looking at. Cause you can look at anything that you have. Do, in they, the do, you, do they look at all of it or does it cost a different amount based on what they want to look at? We do not. So it's funny. We've had that recommendation before by pricing consultants, like, Hey, you should charge more if they're looking at gender and race. We want companies to look as at as many comparisons as possible, because again, that's how we solve yeah. the problem. That's, that, I don't agree with that, that pricing uh, suggestion because it almost seems, it seems grabby. I don't like it. It seems grabby and it doesn't get to our mission. Right, exactly. Your mission is to actually move the needle here. And it's not like, well, how can we make a dollar here, a dollar there on actually changing this whole narrative? You know, and intersectionality is so important. And and we want people to be looking at gender race as much as they can. Mm -hmm. And And how have things changed, Maria, over the last year? And during COVID and during the Black Lives Matter movement and just... I mean, for me, I can just say diversity and inclusion has always been a priority at Fuel, but sad to say we weren't, um, we weren't looking at the data closely to see how we were performing as far as the, the, um, the slate of candidates that we were presenting to clients. We were just sending them the best of the best in our minds, but not saying, well, wait, have we, have we scoured to make sure that we also have representation here? And I think that a lot of companies, we're getting calls that are, that's a top priority is diversity and inclusion. And then your company, of course, can help with like, well, once they get hired, is it actually an inclusive environment as far as pay equity? Totally. That's exactly right. You miss out on a hundred percent of the candidates that you don't, that you don't see. Right. And I think what we're finding is that it's so much easier to retain your way to those diversity goals than recruit your way to them. So that's part of what our product does. And we have another product that looks at representation and distribution, but it helps companies figure out, you know, where is the pipeline of black women? For example, do they have it situated down at the administrative level and they just need to add some resources for development to encourage that demographic to move up and get closer to the senior vice president suite, oftentimes the pipeline is there. It's just mm-hmm. not being invested in. Right. So that's another product that we have called OpiQ that does that. But I, I think you're absolutely correct in that, you know, 13% of our customers, for example, looked beyond just gender pre-murder of George Floyd. And I think we were constantly encouraging companies to go beyond just gender and saying, look, you can have four tabs running four different analyses all in parallel, just add your race data. And I think it was just all the pay equity class actions, all the news, everything in the commentary was about gender, gender, gender. So no one was thinking beyond that. And now they are. 81% of our customers now are looking beyond just gender. They're looking at white versus non-white. They're looking at specific ethnicity comparisons. And that for us is a massive win. That's what we oh, want to see. It's huge. And so who are, who are your target customers? Is that large kind of Fortune, Fortune 5000? Like where are you on the target customer list? I would say the Fortune 2000. I mean, we really can't, we have a lot of companies also as customers that are in that sort of 600 to 2,500 fast growing tech company. Yeah. That their, their demographic is changing all the time, but really our bread and butter are the Fortune 2000. Mm-hmm. Interesting. How was the fundraising process? And it was, seems like you kind of went from the A round to the B round super, super quickly. Yeah. The A round was rough. Um, 
we were raising actually my first conversation with Fern Mandelbaum, who is now on our board and incredible, just an incredible advocate for diversity, equity, inclusion, and everything we do. She's with Emerson Collective. My first conversation with her was uh, in my minivan, the first day of shelter in place. <laughs> and Brandon had all the kids at the mall. And like, I'm sitting in the car trying to figure out like, what the heck are we going to do? This is insane. Um, and I'm pitching Emerson Collective. I had my laptop on my, like I was in the car and just trying to find a place to work and trying to figure out where trying to be. Trying to find the Wi-Fi. <laughs> everything. Um, and so that was the series A and, and we found Emerson Collective and Voyager, which is a local VC yeah. here. And the reason we went so quickly from our A to our B was just the incredible momentum around this topic and the macro environment and the fact that VCs were looking for investments that help companies figure out how to care for and value their most important asset, their people and pay equity. You know, what's more important in valuing your people than how you pay them. It really is foundational. Yeah. And so you're now two and a half years in mm -hmm. what has been the biggest surprise and the biggest challenge. Oh my goodness. There's been so many surprises and challenges. I think I think there's a challenge around confidence and not losing your confidence, specifically in a fundraise as a woman. Um, there are like-minded VCs out there that believe in these principles and this mission and in investing in women in leadership and minorities in leadership and Black-owned business and diversity. But you have to wade through you know, quite a few before oh, you can find yeah. those ones. How many did you have to go through? I mean, did you have just pitch after pitch after pitch? I've talked to several women who pitched a hundred, you know. The series B was totally different. The series B, it was like people coming to you. People coming to us. The series A, they were there were a lot. I don't I would have to go back and look. But yeah. I mean, did you did you get better and better? Who coached you through that? We, you know, we had a real team approach from my executive leadership team. So I would come back with the feedback and then we'd sort of dissect it together. Like, what did they mean by this comment? Let's figure out what that means. Let's pull up our pitch deck. Let's reframe. So I had a really collaborative and supportive executive team and we did a lot of that together, which was pretty fantastic. Um, but you definitely see before you find the VCs that are like-minded and mission-driven like I found in Emerson and Voyager and Bessemer, um, you see this sense of like women are judged on past performance, whereas men are, are judged on future potential. You know, it was oh very much that's like such a, that's such a theme. And I'm sure I've heard so many crazy stories from women CEO friends of mine, and I'm sure you got it around like, well, how are you going to do this as a mom? And like men are asked that I can't, I mean, I can only imagine how many times that came up. Well, the, the other funny part of my series B raise was I was pregnant, but nobody mm. knew it because it was COVID. Oh, perfect. So all my pitches, you know, were yeah. like this. Yeah. And then they found out post-term sheets. Like, So tell me, now that you've built this, you know, awesome. Well, I guess I'm not, I'm trying to think, did you answer that? So you said hardest part, biggest surprise. Oh, I think just, just questioning yourself. When you walk oh, out of one of those meetings and you get feedback and you start to think like, is this because I'm a woman or is this just because I, I sucked? Well, yeah. Like, do I terrible. suck? Yeah. And I think you really have to push out the bias piece 
Because what it can do very quickly is erode your confidence. If you really believe you're doomed because of your gender or your race, even if it might be true that you're getting different feedback than a man would, you can't let that into your psyche. Yeah, because you the can't, minute you can't it permeates you, it. your confidence will be shot. And I had pitches like that where I just went in so insecure and they were the worst ones. You have to go yeah. in thinking, no. I got this. Yeah. You got to, you got to find your superpower in there for sure. So yeah. tell me now, like, tell me about the culture, how many employees do you have and where are you going? Um, as a recruiter, I, I mean, we love Cindio, but I'm curious, there's probably people listening who may be open to hearing about a new opportunity. Like why Cindio? We are hiring right now a ton. We are on a tear. We are the only technology solution addressing this problem for the enterprise. So the enterprise is quickly moving to software for pay equity, and we're the only solution to turn to. Not only that, we're the best solution to turn to because we really understand the space. We have labor economists, lawyers, our domain expert team that helps our customers is the best of the best. We have an NPS trend that's in the upper 80s. So, I mean, our customers are just incredibly happy. That's very high for a SaaS company. Our core values are really important and we live by them. We operationalize them. And that's really important to ask when you're interviewing. I know you have a mission and values, but is it just stuck on the wall and just sits there static or do you operationalize it? Do you draw from it? How does this impact how we interact on Slack? How does this impact how managers address you in your one-on-ones? How does this impact you in terms of how you set your objectives and key results? We have four mission and values and we are constantly reassessing them to make sure they're operationalized. So something like humility and curiosity. We wanna hear new people saying, may I ask a question? May I ask a question? And the response from the existing employees needs to be absolutely, this is a safe place. We wanna help you. We're gonna reward that question and really embodying it. And I think, I think because of that and because we practice what we preach, we are an incredible place to work. I love all of it. I literally am like, I want to take notes and just, I completely agree with you. And I, as, I, as you're talking, I'm like, are ours static on the wall? You know, I'm trying as a CEO, you're constantly trying to make sure that you're living into your values and that, that you're showing up and operationalizing them. Um, but it's so important. And it's a little bit harder right now. You guys are remote, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's hard too, cause you can't, I'm the type of person who needs to see it, touch it, feel it. Like I'm all about in person. I'm actually thriving right now over zoom, which is a weird, but just not knowing, like, how do you create that stickiness in a culture without those um, kind of water cooler bumping into each other conversations? You have to make them. I mean, it, this is a conversation that it's been in the papers every day for the past yeah. week, I feel in terms yeah. of you have to be really careful here, um, specifically as employees, when we say, you know, we want flexibility, we want to be remote, we want to be remote all the time, but yet we want connection. There's some connection that point blank is just not possible unless you're in person. So we have to be really careful in terms of this balance that we create, specifically also for us, like we care, we understand and know that the data it's clear that flexibility benefits women. It benefits minorities. It benefits anyone caring for a child or an elderly parent. That is a benefit that is number one on the top of their list about why they work where they work or what Mm -hmm. they look for. But you do have to really think about how to balance that with 
communication and collaboration. So we're leaning toward a hybrid model where- Yeah, the hybrid model is super smart because there is the innovation part that can also um, get missed when you're just not in person. I think so. And there's so much communication that email is not for communication, not real communication. And that's what we tell people. Like if you need to convey something that's just a data point, send an email. But if you're trying to communicate, you got to pick up the phone or get on video. Yeah. And so how do you approach recruiting as far as understanding or like, what are you looking for as far as attributes? Who's going to be successful at Cindio? I think it's in the how you get work done, honestly. So, you know, I hired Rob out of Starbucks on my first day. Oh, I love it. Law, and I put him in charge of sales. He ran our sales team for two and a half years. Well, that's he smart because he's been the he's been the person in it, so he understands what people are going to want to hear. It, exactly, and yeah, he did a tremendous smart. job. Katie Badero ran data science and analytics at Payscale for a decade. She's running our customer success team. Yeah, Katie's Why? actually how I got an intro to Cindio and to you. She's incredible. She's amazing. I had a long conversation with her. I was like, oh my God, I love you, love you, love you. Yeah, she's awesome. But she had never done customer success a day in her life. But yeah. she's the one that's driving this team that's incredibly successful with these scores and results and happy customers because she understands the product. She understands the problem. She's a labor economist by trade. She understands how to ask really good, thoughtful questions. And more importantly, mm-hmm. she's an incredible leader. People yeah. love working for her. That's amazing. And I think that's what's really important. So if you want to come work for a company where we do look at skills over experience, we really do look at the whole person and we say, what are you going to be good at? Where can Mm -hmm. you bring your strengths to bear? And it doesn't have to be the traditional place where you've always been. It could be something totally different. It's so smart, Maria. You're going to just crush it on the hiring front in a big way because you're also just trusting your intuition. Like this person's smart. They're curious. They're hardworking. They're good communicators. It's like, what else kind of do you need? And they're thought leaders as far as the actual space that you're putting them in. They don't have to be in that functional role all day long. They can figure it out. Exactly. And then there comes a time, like we just hired a traditional SaaS sales leader because we're at the point where we need that. We start, yeah. we need to start thinking really carefully about compensation models and territories and and how to scale and all of the things that a traditional sales leader brings to bear. And we found an incredible one. And, and Rob knows it. Rob's like, it's time for me to go do something else because yeah. we now need to transition. And so there are those points in an organization, but you can't be so fearful of making the wrong call that you miss an intuitive placement of an employee somewhere where they're going to be really, really successful. Yeah, that's great. Super smart way that you're leading. Love it. Um, so tell me, like, well, how do you spend your time? You've got the seven kids, you've got the business. I'm sure there's not much downtime, but when you do have downtime, how do you like to just chill and unwind? I, yeah, I have, you know, everyone that knows me is like, you never stop moving. I'm just like, I sway, I walk. I, my husband owns a gym. So oh, nice. It's, it's just what gym, what gym is it? It's called Accelerate Seattle. It's down on First Ave across from okay. Key Arena and it's been closed for COVID. So he's been a star on the home front helping out. Um, but it's reopening this week because we're moving to phase three. And that's what that's what we do for fun. That's what we do for date nights. That's what we do in our downtime. We love to work out. And so that's kind of our thing. Uh, yeah. And when you talk about focus, I know that you talked about that. Like it's really um, important to be focused. How do you focus outside of work to just prioritize 
You know, I can just tell you right now, I just actually, I, I feel like my cortisol levels are like at an all time high because everything's operating at like a 10, the kids back to school, just all of it. And so, you know, you're going to have to be so laser focused on what's in front of you. And how do you I, prioritize it all? I still use Smartsheet for everything. We use Smartsheet for everything. We're the big client of ours, Smartsheet. We love Smartsheet and they, it's a game changer. Smartsheet's incredible. It's I mean, if we're buying furniture, the entire, like every order number, the email, the piece where it was bought, if the kids, you know, have stuff that they're working, everything's in there, everything. That's so awesome. It really does keep me super focused. So you got, so you got your smart sheet and what do you, what else do you do as far as, do you have any rituals? Um, I know they're working out, um, but how do you set yourself up for a good day, a good week? I, I have this routine now where in the morning, I, um, I always love scanning the publications that I really care about. So right now I'm looking at California 360 law because there's a lot of legislation happening around pay equity. So it's something that I skim. The information I think is unbelievable. It's expensive for a subscription, but so worth it. I love that newsletter. I love their site. I look at the Wall Street Journal. I look at the New York Times. And it's just kind of my way to ground myself in not only what's happening today at my company, but like reminding myself of what's happening in the macro environment. And that's honestly where I get my best ideas because things are getting triggered. I'm seeing things that are being written about, whether it's like environmental social good or like, you know, Goldman's changing their diversity requirements for boards. It just puts everything in perspective. And that's kind of the way I start my day. Right now I'm doing it while I'm pumping, but normally it's just like <laughs> in the quiet moments of the morning, I like to scan all those new sites. I have to say, I'm pretty much in awe and I want more. I want more time with you, but I'm going to ask you my final question, which is what fuels you? What's your ultimate fuel in your life? Right now, the ultimate fuel in my life is making sure that we are all doing our part to make the corporate environment a more equitable place to be. And that doesn't necessarily mean dictating what's equitable. It means, are we doing our part to make sure that when people think of a profitable or good business, they're thinking of a business that also treats its people fairly. And that's really important as a mother, as a sister, as a friend. We want that for the future. We want that for our kids and we want that for our legacy. So yeah. that is what fuels me on a daily basis is figuring out like, how do we make the workplace a better place to to be yeah. to work which, to which ultimately yeah makes a better future for your kids for my kids and so i'm super grateful for all the work that you're doing and i just know you're going to continue to crush it super super uh proud to have you on the podcast and happy that i get to know you a little bit better yeah thank you so much for having me thank you for listening to the what fuels you podcast be sure to subscribe rate and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.